Are you talking shift? We are. It's time for the We're Talking Shift podcast. Now, now, now. Here to talk shift, Lori Bischoff. We're talking shift. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 50 of the We're Talking Shift podcast, where all we do is talk shift. My belief is that when we feel stuck, we have to shift, and that process has to begin with our thinking. A shift in our outer world must start with a shift in our inner world. And that, my friends, is the antidote to feeling stuck. It all begins in our minds with a shift in our thinking. And this is why I just love talking with other people who are also coaches or therapists, authors, and deep thinkers, just anyone who's really using their voice, their experiences, and their expertise to help people get unstuck and create their version of a sweet life. So something that I've been wondering a lot about lately is on the subject of addiction. I think many of us probably have similar images and definitions that come to mind when we think about the subject of addiction. But what I've begun to wonder a lot about is if we're not all in some way addicted to something. So I began to search around a bit to see if there had been anything written about this, which is where I discovered an interesting article written by today's guest, Dr. Carter Stout. Dr. Stout is a Los Angeles-based depth psychotherapist. His private practice is located in Brentwood, where he specializes in relationships, dream analysis, and addictions. He has been a guest contributor on Larry King Now, and many of his blogs have been featured on Goop, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, website with all kinds of awesome lifestyle things and articles. It's really great. And he has a just a bunch of really interesting articles on there. Check it out. I reached out to him after reading his article and was so excited that he agreed to come on the show and talk about this subject with me because it has a he has a really, really unique perspective on it. Dr. Stout, welcome to We're Talking Shift. I am so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. It's a pleasure. Yes, absolutely. I'm um, I'm really excited about this um, to have you on here talking about this because addiction does seem to show up in all shapes and sizes to varying degrees. And there were several things that you talked about in your article that really caught my attention. I mean, things that I've never heard anybody utter before around this subject. Um, The first thing that grabbed me was when you said addiction is inside you no matter how far your soul has evolved. And wow, that's a bold statement. And I can only imagine that it must have raised a lot of, I don't know, shall we say spiritually evolved eyebrows. <laughs> so can you can you tell us more about how you came to that belief and what kind of reactions sure. you got when you published that? Sure. When the when the article was published, it was published on Goop and it was something that, you know, every once in a while you write an article that really somehow uh, lands in a way where people are very responsive to it. And this was one of those instances. And this, the article that I wrote, it was called Everyone's an Addict, and it was uh, translated into 
many different languages and sent around the world. So it kind of went viral. Um, and uh, I would say that overwhelmingly the response was really a curiosity as to the potential for really this new idea about addiction that was non-traditional, that was um, something that was straying from the norms of how most people think of addiction or look at addiction. And then, of course, there was uh, also a backlash of people who thought, well, this is, uh, this is gibberish, this, is, this doesn't make any sense, and so there were some attacks as well. But I, I think that whenever you hit a nerve with something, you are going to also uh, receive criticism and people that are diametrically opposed to your point of view. And, and I always feel that that's healthy because that stimulates a robust conversation between people. Mm, so, totally. So, so the, the, the response was really uh, uh, an interesting one. And, um, you know, the, the way that I came to this understanding of addiction was not only through my own experience. Uh, I'm someone who's in recovery from addiction to many different things. Um, when I was uh, a teenager, I suffered from eating disorders, and I had, uh, and, and that was a part of my life for about a decade. Um, when I um, went off to college, it became alcohol, and uh, I think I was self-medicating through relationships and love and sex. And as I grew older, it became more of an appetite for substances. And um, so there was this understanding that I had attained that addiction is not necessarily something that is stationary, but it's, it's movable. It's something that is, uh, can move from one thing to another. So that if somebody were addicted to, let's say, drugs and alcohol, and they were to get sober from that, they may pick up another addiction. They may be prone to have something else that they, they might start eating a little bit too much, or they might, you know, there are a lot of people in recovery that, um, that uh, have issues with, um, with uh, exercise or over-exercising or, or even... Um, you know, or, 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 or get uh, obsessed with video games and things of yeah. that nature. So, so this idea was that addiction isn't just about what you're addicted to, but it's more that there's an energy inside of you that potentially is going to, if not treated in a certain way, is going to be alive in you and will become activated in you. And that could translate to you being addicted to any of a number of things, which I mentioned in the article, work to, uh, to food, to anxiety, to anger, to sex, to exercise. Um, there's really any of a number of things that uh, would fall into the category. Right. Um, and, and that's what got me so interested, Dr. Stout, in, in looking for this information, because I was thinking... Um, along the lines of, well, you know, I, 
What about the addictions that people have to, you know, video gaming and shopping and gambling? And like you, like you stated, you know, it could be eating too much food or too little food. It, it's social media. I mean, there's, there's so many different, and I, different addictions. And I thought, well, do I want to try and interview a, uh, an expert on each one of these areas or what's right. the common denominator here? Are we all just addicted to something in some way, which, you know, is what got me searching for some information and, and then, right. you know, stumbling across your article right off the bat, I was just sucked in right away. And as somebody who believes that everything from matter to mind is energy, you know, it really yeah. got my attention when you said addiction is simply energy. So yeah. That's, that's, and, and it's not only energy, but um, something that I want to explain, which I think is very pertinent, is that it's archetypal energy. And, our, and this is really um, a theology and an ideology that was uh, fathered by Carl Jung. And mm -hmm. he was really someone who brought this idea of archetypes into are into common language. And an archetype is something that, uh, a, a pattern of behavior or a pattern of thought or a pattern of action that all of us engage in as human beings and as animals and as uh, people that are in this world. And so it is an imprint that we all have that's an understanding of something. And the, um, this information which we are all born with and that continues to evolve as we grow and our, our, our minds form is, uh, is something that all of us share together. We all have it in our DNA. And I believe that addiction is one of those things. We all, in some capacity, have the rudiments of addiction in our DNA. And in some people, it gets activated because of their set of circumstances, their environments, or um, any of a number of things that, and any life situations that are difficult where they're feeling anxiety or they're feeling depressed or they're feeling pressure. Mm -hmm. But addiction, the imprint of addiction is in all of us and it's something that we can all identify with and something that we all can share because it is um you know even a person that traditionally might say well you know i don't understand addiction i'm not an addict even that person i imagine has had in a situation where maybe when they were younger they really had a um you know, a crush or an infatuation with a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. And they were thinking about that boy or girl incessantly and almost obsessively like we, we do when we have crushes. Right. And the only thing that would take away those thoughts and that energy was to actually have a, an encounter with that person. And... Um, when those kinds of obsessive thoughts take over and the only way that they can be remedied is through a compulsive action, that is the energy of addiction. So even mm. somebody that would say, you know, I've never felt the energy of addiction. Well, I would argue, well, yes, you have. You just are 
looking at the parameters of addiction in a different way. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's obsessed about a cookie that's been sitting on a plate in, the, in their pantry and thinking, you know what, I shouldn't eat that cookie. It's, it's got too much sugar. I, it doesn't, it's not in accordance with my uh, holistic yeah. idea of what I should be doing now. And they keep thinking about it and keep thinking about it and keep thinking about it until they go in there and they eat it. That is the energy of addiction. It's no different than the energy that an addict feels when they, uh, you know, are, are obsessively thinking mm-hmm. about whatever substance, whatever pharmaceutical uh, yeah. or, or yeah. chemical that they, are, um, that they are addicted to. So is it then, in your opinion, would that make it totally different than the common belief that many have that it's a genetic disease? If it's something that's inherent in everyone and it's just a matter of, is it going to be triggered or not by, you know, environmental influences? I think that it is genetic, but I think it is in all of our genes. Okay. (laughs) Got it. I don't think it's passed to specific people. Now there's this theory that some people have a predisposition to being more affected or potentially uh, becoming addicted to things mm-hmm. um, because they had an uncle who was an addict or they had a mother or they had a grandmother or someone in their family. Well, yeah. look at most families in the world um, and you were to look at them through the lens of what I'm talking about, I think that you could find someone in every family that was displaying signs of addiction, whether it was work addiction, whether it was love addiction, or whether it was addiction to anger. Anger sure. feeling welling up in them to a point where it was so powerful that it was being released in negative ways and their inability to control that anger. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at it through a different lens, I would say that are addicted across the scale. It is something that is archetypal. It's something that we all know, we all understand. It's just that so many people try to negate it and separate themselves from it because it has been so demonized mm-hmm. uh, in the modern age. And it is, uh, it is in many cases, tragic. It uh, takes over people's lives and it, and it um, destroys their sense of self, and in, in many cases, it, it takes their lives. So we, as a culture uh, here in the United States, have said, well, addiction is a bad thing. Addiction is a negative thing. Addiction is something that destroys families. It destroys people's lives. And only and certain say, people get it. Like, only certain yes. people succumb to it is the... Yeah, prevailing. Okay. And listen, let me qualify for a minute, you know, because not only did I go through uh, a tremendous amount of addictive phases in my life, but I also had a mother who um, who died from alcohol addiction. Okay. And Mm -hmm. she. So this is something that I am, of course, very sensitive to, and and um, and when I say this next statement, I think it's important that I qualify in that way, that I have tremendous amount of empathy for people that have addiction in their life, but I don't believe that addiction is a bad thing. I don't think addiction is a negative thing. 
Addiction just is. Addiction mm. is in you and it's in me and it's in all of us. Mm-hmm. And if we start accepting it and looking at it in a different way, treating it with love instead of demonizing it, that is going to transform the energy of addiction into something that we can manage. So, so yeah, you, you, you say that the more love and attention you give to it, to the addiction, the more it yeah. behaves itself. So That's right. now that could obviously be very easily misinterpreted by some to mean feed the addiction, but that um, that's, I'm sure that that's not what you mean, but clarify exactly what you mean by giving it love and attention so it behaves itself. Okay, so I'm a psychologist and I work with patients and I have a private practice here in Los Angeles I work with patients from all walks of life who are encountering many different situations in their life that uh, they, they ask for my assistance with. Um, my primary goal as a psychologist is to teach people to love themselves, okay? Yep. Above and beyond anything else, baseline of my message is love oneself. Now. I don't ask them to love themselves additionally. And I don't say love only certain parts of yourself. I say love all of yourself because that is a way of a healthy psyche. And that is what I believe the soul's intention for us to help us to grow and evolve and to learn to completely love ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we think of addiction as a bad thing, and we think of it as a negative and we think of it as a part of ourself that we don't like, then that inhibits our ability to fully love ourselves. Yeah. So when I say love your addiction, I, what I mean is love all of the parts of yourself. Love the complicated parts of yourself. Love the parts of yourself that need excavation from your psyche, maybe are repressed. Love your fear. Love your... Love your sadness, love your warts, and love your beauty. I want you to love it all. And that's what I mean about loving your addiction. Got addiction it. Addiction is love with reverence, and it's treated with understanding. It's going to recede. The activation of that addiction is going to finish until it's at a controllable level. But what one needs to do is to begin to see it as something that's alive, that has consciousness, and we need to be in relationship to it. We can't try and repress it or demonize it or think it's a bad thing, because when we do that, it only grows stronger. That makes sense, because if you think that, uh, like you said, that it's such a negative, horrible thing, and you um, you know, are, are possessed with this compulsive action in the form of, you know, an addictive behavior to something, you can't control it. You start to feel, I would imagine, like, like you're not worthy of love because you have this, this monster that you can't control, which would be very counter to trying to heal and deal with it. Right. Now, now I think all of us have shadow elements we all have parts of ourselves that, um, you know, we may not 
appreciate as much as others. Um, but anytime someone engages in an addictive behavior, if they then think of themselves as a failure, or they are angry at themselves, or they are um, become depressed, or if they're criticized by others and demonized by others, or ostracized by them, then ultimately what they're left with is, I'm a bad person, addiction is making me a bad person, I'm weak, mm -hmm. I am uh, unevolved, and that is not a message that we want to convey to anybody. Right. As human beings. Yeah. But the idea yeah. is to have reverence and love and respect for everyone, and we are categorizing this uh, this energy as something that's um, that, that something that's extremely negative, then when somebody feels that energy in them, they are going to think negative thoughts about themselves. Yeah, which is not going to help them get to the place they want to be and become friends with their addiction so that they can manage the situation. That's that makes, right. That makes perfect sense. So how do we distinguish between... Or is there a difference between addictive behavior and just habits and rituals? Uh, there is a distinction. It's, it's hard sometimes for people that have never really been in the throes of an addictive cycle to understand how powerful it can be. Um, that's why I always, you know, you're going to go into treatment for addiction or you're going to see someone for addiction I, I feel like you're going to get the best results if that person has gone through it themselves. Um, so sometimes it's hard for people who don't really, have never been really activated in their addiction to understand it. Um, but the essence really is that if you are having obsessive thoughts about something, and that is leading to compulsive actions. So if you're thinking about thinking something, thinking, and you just cannot shake those thoughts in your mind, and you are just being overwhelmed by those thoughts, and the only thing that puts an end to those thoughts if you do that action, mm -hmm. that is an addictive cycle. Okay. And if you begin to do something and you like it so much that you just cannot contain it, and you want to do more and more and more of it and more of it and more of it, and there is no way that you can set a boundary around it, that's also a cycle. Okay. So, so those are the two main okay. qualifiers being activated in an addictive cycle. Okay. Are there good or healthy addictions? Um, well, I think certainly. Um, it, it's... Uh, it really depends on how you look at it. I think anyone who's in, addicted to knowledge, um, that they are uh, wanting to learn on a regular basis, wanting to expand their, their understanding of things, that are, are addicted to kindness, um, that they have a benevolent spirit and are, are trying to um, affect positive change in the world, um, I think that uh, people that are addicted to spirituality and have really um, become consumed by this quest 
to find the, their deeper self and to connect with some of the sort of sacred ancient principles in the universe and then perhaps to be able to share that with others in a, uh, for their benefit. I, I think that those are, uh, could mm-hmm. be quantified as positive addictions. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So compulsive organizing and wanting everything in its place. <laughs> what, what would that, where would that fall? <laughs> well, I mean, that could fall into an addiction if it was, you know, um, if it were, uh, like an, like an obsessive compulsive disorder, right? I mean, yeah. Or something that was a pattern of behavior that had no beginning or end point. But I think that many of us have the tendency to want to straighten things up and feel better when things are straightened. And I think that uh, we feel like we perform betterly, better if our uh, things are orderly and, and, and all in position. But if you are consumed with an overwhelming um, obsession and compulsion around cleanliness and cleaning and, and, and straightening things up and being orderly, then I would say that you're in the throes of an addictive cycle. Hmm. That is fascinating. So what would be like a very common or ordinary addiction that most people would maybe not view or as addiction or define it as addiction. I mean, the, you know, we all know the, the things that are obvious and the, and the people that are demonstrating that in obvious ways, but is there, or are there some that are very common and ordinary that most people would never put in that category? I have never met anyone that at some point in their life didn't have a, an unhealthy relationship with food. Really? Yes. Meaning they uh, were uh, felt as though they were a few pounds overweight and needed to diet, so therefore cut off their food supply. Or they were um, um, trying to achieve some kind of a goal and uh, were, were not allowing themselves uh, a healthy intake of food, but yet we're thinking about it all the time and obsessing about it all the time. There's, a, you know, in our culture, there's sort of an, a, very much an obsession with how we look, how we present ourselves, and um, how we look and how we present ourselves is very much linked to what we put into our bodies. Sure. And uh, there's this relationship with food that, you know, if you look at the numbers here in the United States, uh, we're, I think we're the most obese country on, on earth. Mm-hmm. There is a uh, tremendous amount of people that overeat and they don't eat well um, and don't exercise and aren't really in a rhythm of, of, of a healthy life cycle. And, um, so I think food really hits the nail on the head of an addiction that really across the board we all have experienced. Yeah, I can see that. I can see 
in in all directions when it comes to food. Like you said, either overeating, undereating, limiting to certain things, the obsession with specific diets, and the the trend just keeps you know it just keeps going and going with the new something new, the latest one. Um, so that does make sense, and I think you're right. I think a lot of people probably, if they think that they're doing their dieting well they wouldn't consider it an addiction. They would just That's consider right. it doing it well, even though by the way okay. that you're describing it, it could be considered an addiction. Hmm. Yes, yes. Another one that um, that really pops up that, that most people wouldn't even maybe admit to or consider, but that I've found as a psychologist is something that's very prevalent, is vanity. And it's really this, uh, obsession with self, this obsession with how we look, this obsession with how we are perceived, this obsession mm-hmm. with, um, with um, how we present ourselves. And it's this real kind of self-centered uh, obsession that uh, is alleviated through the compulsive interaction of positive reinforcement. So if someone tells us, oh, you look good, then that might alleviate that, you know, that obsessive, uh, uh-huh. consistent thought about self. Very prevalent now, uh, also with social media yeah. and with the addiction um, that's really rampant right now uh, with uh, our cell phones. Right. Uh, People are incredibly tied to these small computers and devices, and so many ways uh, um, their self-esteem is tied to a device that they hold in their hands, whether or not they're receiving positive feedback on things that they're posting on social media, whether or not they're getting attention. And it's also a, um, a way that they uh, can alleviate social anxiety and fear. You know, you see people all the time now sitting at coffee shops alone on their phone. Yeah. Now, previous to phones being there, someone would have to sit with a book or sit just drinking their coffee and be maybe people watching or observing other things. And it, 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 uh, right. when you have a phone... There's, there's an activity to do, so you don't have to have that pause or that moment to yourself that, for many people, is uncomfortable. Some feel um, nervous or anxious. Yeah. I mean, a long time ago, you know, coffee, coffee shops were a place where people gathered to have coffee and interact with each other face-to-face. Yeah. And, and now, now, and now you go, people go and they're, um, isolated even amongst other people. They're not interacting with everyone else face to face, you know, unless they went there with somebody, but then often, even then all parties are still engaged with their phones. It's pretty I'll tell you a funny story. So, uh, my brother, um, he, uh, when his daughter was 16, she had a birthday party, and it was, I think, 12 16-year-olds. 
and they all went out to this uh, restaurant and around this big, long table. And at one point, other looked up, and all 16 of them were on their phones. And they were texting each other at the table. Oh. Instead of speaking to one another, they were communicating with one another via their phones. That is crazy. I thought, wow, this is something that is really threatening the way that that we learn the healthy ways to interact with one another. Yes. And it, uh, it takes away the, uh, the archetypal understanding and, and, um, and pattern of looking someone in the eye and mm-hmm. holding out your hand and shaking someone's hand and the physical touch and mm-hmm. the ability to, uh, to, to form words and sentences and to express oneself through language um, because the language is now being spread through the thumbs. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that powerful human need for connection isn't really being met that, that way by going through your phone. Like you said, when you're not looking at somebody and shaking their hand and actually having an exchange with them in real time in, in their presence and acknowledging their, that they exist and that, you know, you're aware of them and that they're aware of you. And, you have the interaction of the energy that's going between you. You lose all of that when the communication is through a phone. You do. You very much do. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Um, I've treated a few adolescents in my practice who are very much in the throes of addiction with their devices and with uh, video games. And mm. um, they are... Uh, at in a in, at a stage where the thrill of interacting with a computer screen or with a television screen far overrides the thrill of going outside and throwing a baseball or uh, taking a bike ride or going to the beach. Mm-hmm. And. Um, uh, you know, it's a it's a new world, and that's just a, it's a it's a new way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what the future will hold, but I think it's going to be a lot about uh, you know virtual reality and virtual interaction, where people are actually interacting in a virtual way with one another uh, through their devices and through computers. But um, you know, call me a traditionalist, but uh, I uh, you know I'm 50 years old, and when I was growing up. When, uh, when I was 17, all I wanted to do was jump in the car and get my friends in the car and, you know, drive up the coast. Yeah. And, uh, uh, ha- and, and have the experience, the, the, uh, the real experience of having my friends together in a car and to be disconnected in a way that there were only pay phones around and every once in a while we would call our parents just to check in. But that right. was it. That exactly. Was it. Was, nobody knew who we were, where we were. We didn't know where other people were. And it was a lot simpler because we could focus on the present. We could focus on what was in front of us, what was going on around us. And, and that's why, you know, I have these experiences. 
And I think how fortunate I was that, there, that it was not an age of technology when I was growing up because the, the memories that I have are so sacred and so wonderful of my interactions with my friends. And those friends are still 35 years later, my, my great friends today. And I sure. think it's, it's, it's largely part of the shared experiences that we had. Yeah, there, there's something to be said for those kinds of experiences. I grew up the same the same way. I mean, we spent all of our time, um, you know, together with friends and you were outside and you were doing something together. You were your feet were on the ground together doing something. It wasn't all, you know, in a device in 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 the cosmos. And, you know, it, it was it was right there in real time happening. And. Yeah, you wonder, like like you, I have tons of just fabulous, delicious memories. And if if you're a child, a youngster growing up now, and all of your activity is taking place on a device, what kind of memories will you have when you become an adult? I mean, okay. is there going to be anything that stands out? I know, I know. I mean, I was very fortunate. And when I was in college, I got to take a year off, and I went with two of my best friends from high school, and we traveled around the world together with backpacks on our back, and we did a, a trek, uh, a 22-day trek up in the Himalayas in Nepal, and went over a pass that was 18,000 feet, and it was 22 days of the three of us in the mountains together, and we... Uh, it's an experience that all of us look back on, and I look at those photo albums still, and I think how fortunate I was, and it, and we we became so close as friends, and still are today, um, because of this uh, this experience that we had that was untainted by anything else, unfractured by anything else. It was it was um, protected by this. Uh, this disconnection we had from the outside world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we didn't call our parents for a month or two. And, of course, I, I imagine that they were worried. But when you think about the interaction that parents and kids have today, it's multiple times a day. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. many cases, you know, right. it's And there was none of that. And, and, and so at, just as you do, I have such fond memories of those times. And, and, um, and I really hope and try to instill in the people that I work with the value of having those types of experiences. So I always advocate, I say, hey, turn your phone off. In fact, in my office uh, in Brentwood, where, where I have my practice, I ask everyone to power their phones down before they come into my office. Nice. Because I don't want them to have any connection to that distraction. And... I advocate for my clients to say, you know, when you go home, put your phone in a drawer, turn it off, don't allow yeah. phones at the at the at the dinner table, turn the TV off when you're eating dinner, have a family dinner with one another, try and lead by example, and <laughs> you don't need a connection to all of these things all of the time. Spend right. Some time with one another with your family, and. Uh, you know, sometimes I think it falls on deaf ears, but other times I think it, it's helpful to people to to give them permission to say, you don't have to have this thing all the time. 
Right. It's going to be interesting as, uh, you know, in the coming years to see how this addiction starts to evolve, you know, with with the younger people that have grown up, you know, with from babies with playing with cell phones. You know, it's been a part of their life since they were born. So it will be yeah. interesting to see how things evolve as time goes on. Um, Dr. Shout, what's your going rogue story? My going rogue story. Well, uh, this is an interesting one, I think. Um, maybe not as traditional a, a going rogue story as, as you may hear. But when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was in a very strong addictive cycle to alcohol, to cocaine, and to heroin. And I uh, was, it had become activated because of trauma that I had experienced as a child that was uh, repressed and I'd never dealt with. And and it just really, it was strongly activated in me, that addiction. And so for about five or six years, I was really um, essentially self-destructing. And um, I, it, it got very bad. Um, and I was certainly uh, on the brink times of, of overdosing and not making it through. And when I finally did get receive the the help that I needed, um, which was through a lot of love and support from my friends and through uh, finding some treatment that was very helpful. Uh, when I finally gave it up and when I finally started to address the addictive part of me that had grown so big and strong, I realized that at age 35, I um, couldn't go back to the town that I had been living in, and I couldn't be involved in the same industry that I had spent 10 years trying to build a career in, um, and that I was going to stay. At that time, I was in New Mexico, and I was going to stay there. I was going to apply to graduate school. Um, in order to apply to graduate school, I, I had to take uh, a year at a community college. And I didn't have any money at all. Um, I was living in a, in a sublet. I remember when I got out of, of treatment, I had, you know, $100 to my name. And I found a sublet uh, for a month that was $200. And I got a job working at a... Um, at a restaurant as a waiter, and I started to rebuild my life, and I completely changed directions. And all of my friends in Los Angeles thought, you know, you're crazy. You're gonna you're gonna live in New Mexico, and you're gonna wait tables, and you're gonna go to community college. And little by little, I started to um, appreciate <laughs> the hard work that I was doing, mm-hmm. and. So the job waiting tables became a job in an art gallery, and then it became a job at a mental health center. Uh, I got my master's degree three years later and um, moved back to Los Angeles and entered a doctoral program. And six years after that, I earned a Ph.D. in um, psychology. And uh, so I completely made it at age 35, 
um, and uh, uh, followed a dream of being someone that at the end of the day felt good about himself and about what I was doing and, and, and potentially assisting others of finding peace and uh, helping to find meaning in their own lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm. that's, uh, that's, that's, what, that's what going rogue was for me. Certainly, I had gone rogue earlier in my life through my addictive cycle, but this was about sort of giving everything up and reinventing myself at age 35 and building a whole new life. And, you know, I, I'm a father of two beautiful children now. I'm married. I own a home up in the Santa Monica Mountains. And none of it would have been possible unless I had given everything up and sort of pressed the, pressed the reset button and started and, and, and go, gone in a completely different direction that I did. Right. And that, that is an awesome going rogue story. It's awesome. Bravo. That's amazing. I mean, that is, yeah, that's, that's a huge, um, that's a huge turnabout. And, uh, I mean, talk about one extreme to the other. It was hard. You know, I always say, uh, it's possible to go from homelessness to earning a PhD because that's what I did. Wow. My addiction, I was homeless and 15 or 10 years later, I had become a doctor. That is phenomenal. That's absolutely phenomenal. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. That's, uh, You're welcome. It, yeah, it, I, I think anybody hearing um, a story like that, it, I mean, I would only hope that there was just even a spark of inspiration, you know, to help somebody that thinks that maybe um, it's too late to turn their lives around. It's just, it never is. And that's why I love it when people share their stories like this, because it is possible. People are doing it every single day from, you know, bringing themselves up from the depths of despair. That's right. No matter how far you have come down, no matter how far you have fallen, there's always the ability to slowly pick yourself up and to rebuild your life and have a much better life than you ever did before. I'm living proof of that, and I know many others that have the same thing. And so never lose faith, never lose the belief that it is turn your life. Beautiful. So, Dr. Stout, where can people find out more about you and your work um, if they'd like to or connect with you? Where would you send them? Well, they, if you would like to read some of the things that I've written, I've written uh, 12 articles for a website called, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's Lifestyle and Branding website yeah. where uh, a, a tremendous amount of really wonderful information about a lot of topics, but uh, all of the articles that I've written um, are on different aspects of psychology. So, you know, on relationships and addiction and analysis and archetypes and that nature. You can go just to goop.com and type in my name, Carter Stout, C-A-R-E-R-S-T-O-U-T. You can also go to www.pr 
C-A-R-D-E-R-S-T-O-U-T. So that's drcarterstout.com. And yes. uh, that's my website, and it talks about who I am and has some of the uh, information about what I do. And uh, I would love to hear from any and all of you. There's also a, uh, a button on my website that says, you know, ask Dr. Stout, and people from around the world ask me questions and I uh, about different things that they're going through, and I will gladly respond and, 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 uh, and be in touch with you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Before I let you go, um, what would you like to share with our listeners about the value of going rogue? Well, for me, it was, was everything. It was the difference between life and death. I was, I was dying a slow death um, of despair, of self-hatred, uh, of uh, confusion, sadness. And um, I had to um, take a risk, and it was probably the biggest risk I've ever taken. But without the risk, I would have been entrenched in the same patterns that I had been my whole entire life. And so going rogue for me was giving myself the opportunity to open myself up to a new way of life and to, uh, to say that, to have the courage to say that, you know, that things were not working uh, the way that they, that they were going and um, so the value anyone a rogue really is to uh, give yourself the opportunity to take a risk because I really feel that taking risks is so important in life get yourself out of your comfort zone. do something that you're not familiar with continue to grow and learn as a human being um, because that's the greatest gift that we can all give to ourselves uh, life, continue to grow and evolve and learn. Um, because if we don't do that, ultimately, I think we feel unfulfilled and unhappy. Yes. Beautiful. I totally agree. And that was, that was just wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I would love to have you back at some point point. There are so many things I would love to talk to you about and have you share. Um, so hopefully if I come knocking on your door again, you'll be willing to come back and visit with me. My some pleasure, more. Laura. This has been really fun. And uh, thanks for asking me such great questions. And, and I would love to come back on the show. That would be great. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it, Dr. Stout. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. I found this to be fascinating. And I hope you guys did too. And whether you agree with Dr. Stout's views or not, you've got to admit this, that his perspective offers an entirely different way to consider addiction or addictive behaviors. I think it deserves some serious consideration. I hope you find yourself pondering what you heard today. And if you know someone who might find this show interesting, please spread the good shift around and share the link. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And a rating always makes my heart smile. As a personal performance coach, I'm happy to help you make some shift happen in your life. So if you would like to find out what private coaching with me is all about, head on over to lauriebischoff.com or we're talkingshift.com. And of course, you can connect with me on all of the social media platforms. 
So thank you for listening, everyone. Until we meet again, stay feisty, my friends, and go make some shift happen in your life. That goes for you, too, Mr. Gary V. The preceding podcast was a TJ DeSantis production. Comments, questions, and inquiries can be directed to desantisprod at gmail.com.